Ascending Olympus, the Inner Sanctum's Paralympics podcast. I'm your host, Jackie, and today I'm only joined by Dan. So how are you today? I'm not too bad, Jackie. Thanks. How are you? Pretty good. I'm excited for the Paralympics to start. It's a little under a week away now, our time, and whilst the... (laughs) overwhelming like a sense of the olympics ending was just like knocked me flat and i needed to sleep for three days i'm actually really excited now that the paralympics is about to start oh absolutely and i mean i've been in lockdown for quite a while now and that bet that i made i don't even know how many weeks ago that the paralympics would finish before lockdown is looking more accurate and now we're getting close to the point where I might guess that the ashes might finish before the lockdown ends and then um, the ashes will happen and you'll be like when Beijing 2022 ends lockdown away I bloody well hope not but oh I am really looking forward to the Paralympics it's going to give me a great lift I think um, and I'm excited to do it and I'm also excited to do it at a pace that allows me to really enjoy the games because I think that was one of the things about the Olympics is that we ran so fast that actually some of the moments escaped me so I'm looking forward to enjoying the Paralympics yeah and it's gonna start on Tuesday next week which lucky for us that's normally our pod night so we'll be able to recap the opening ceremony at the very least but I was gonna say opening ceremony live stream like are we gonna can you imagine (laughs) probably be better with the names than the previous broadcast that we saw so <laughs> All wrong. Uh, I will say something that pleasantly surprised me was that Thomas Bach will officially be attending the opening ceremony of the Paralympics. In normal times, I think it's expected and a given, but because he left Japan and then now is coming back, I think that there was a little bit of that up in the air. Like, will the president of the IOC a be able to get back into Japan? But also, will it just be that it's maybe not entirely. The, worth the risk I guess is the coldest but also best way to phrase it yeah I mean it's interesting he he was in Japan for the Olympics very early on he ended up being there for almost a month um or slightly over a month actually and only the last two weeks of that with the Olympics so it is interesting that he is looking to arrive the day before the games which would prevent him from undertaking any sort of quarantine or anything like that which is certainly noteworthy given um, you know, there was so much talk about the quarantine protocols for athletes and para-athletes, but I think that having him there to represent the IOC is really important and you know, adds a sense of normalcy to what is otherwise going to be very much not a normal games. No, and I think that we already knew that these games weren't going to be normal and I even made the bold prediction which is wrong and thank god it's wrong that we could end up seeing the Paralympics getting cancelled if the situation with the Olympics went pear-shaped but the fact that he's going and showing solidarity I guess is the nicest way to phrase it when we know already now that it's definitely not having spectators especially is a positive sign and the IPC's report as to whether they'd be having spectators because they had a five-party meeting earlier this week uh, their decision to say no, we won't, and also discourage, say, for the road events to be like, we'd rather people don't come and watch. But the big interesting part of that was the fact that they are still going to try and allow where possible schools to come in, which that's massive for the Paralympics, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the memories that stands out for me is that when Sydney 2000 was on, I was only in kindergarten, but we had kind of, I don't think it was an excursion to the Paralympics, but I think we had someone from the Paralympics come out and we got to hold the Paralympic torch and we all got to hear about it. And it, it was something that, you know, stands with me 21 years on. So it definitely worked. And I think that it's really important that we continue to raise the profile of the Paralympics and, and talk about them because they are going to be certainly the focus of Brisbane as much as the Olympic Games. Um, and, you know, now is a good time to build that momentum with 11 years in the bank is a good time to start. Yeah. And the especially with the school age kids, it's not only helpful for, we've, I think we've talked about this previously, it's not only helpful for kids with disabilities that hope to someday perhaps get into sport, but also uh, kids who do not have any disabilities to look up to these athletes just as much as they look up to, say, um, Emma McKeon or someone like that, because these people are just as inspiring, if not more. Uh, in not only how they've dealt with the circumstances of their life, but also um, just what they can do with their bodies. Like an athlete is amazing regardless. <laughs> it's the best way to put it. Well, yeah, and that doesn't even consider people like Carol Cook and Dylan Orcott who switched sports with success. I mean, there are very few Olympians who, you know, get gold medals in one sport. There are even fewer who change sports and get medals or Olympic representation in a second sport. To do that and win multiple gold medals, someone like Dylan Alcott is insane. Really, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and it's something that really should be lauded more because it's such an incredible achievement and no one else is getting near it. So um, we should continue to raise the profile of athletes like Dylan Alcott and Carol Cook. Yeah, I it's just like come into my head because I've remembered seeing something on it uh, on social media a few days ago. But I know that Team USA actually has an athlete that's going to be competing at the Paralympics in two different sports this year. Uh, so his name is Blake Haxton, and he's going to be competing both in the para canoe and the rowing. Which to be going again, it's the same thing of like to be going in one sport, insane. To be going to the same Paralympics in two sports is a whole other level of wow knock your socks off achievement i mean we talked about um the u.s long long jumper and high jumper um devon harrison i think his name is off the top of my head who, who was competing both the long jump and the high jump at the olympics but even that is not nearly you know that that was incredibly impressive but it's not nearly as impressive as going for both rowing and canoeing at the same Olympics because they are different sports and they're different muscle groups and they require different kind of training. So to be able to do both is absolutely a testament to Blake's abilities. Yeah, um, I guess the big thing is we've now got the Australian Paralympic squad finalised and it will be our biggest overseas squad ever, which similar to the Tokyo squad, which I think was our third biggest ever, uh, but 179 athletes are set to travel to Japan and they'll also have 168 support staff, which is massive. Um, but we'll be competing in 18 of the 22 sports, which I I don't know. I think that partially I was like, oh, you kind of assume that like it's Australia, we'll go for everything. But when it was like, 
oh, these are the sports getting laid out in front of me. I was just like, yeah, I didn't think we'd actually be sending athletes in like para taekwondo and para judo <laughs> this year. Yeah, I mean, and in my head, you know, there's a whole lot of sports that I haven't really even even thought about because it only goalball is something that I am, you know, like with the decathlon at the Olympics, I'm absolutely going to be an expert at invested in goalball in a week and a half. No question. Um, you know, that, that's one of the sports that is completely unique to the Paralympics and bachi is another one. And those are sports that I'm really looking forward to as much as um, murder ball or wheelchair rugby as it's more politely known. Um, but that's another one of the sports that's great for Australia at this Olympics. Um, not only obviously do we have a really strong team, but we have our first female player um, going to this Olympics in Shea Graham, which is really exciting um, because that's, you know, a great barrier to reach. And, and it's something that I don't think we always think about is that the gender barrier and the glass ceiling to a lot of these sports that are mixed gender um, and kind of taken as really if, if you, you fill a team the way you fill a team um, and it's not something that we really think about. So to be able to break those barriers as well is really exciting for Shay. Yeah, I love the fact that the wheelchair rugby is a mixed sport. I watched a bit of it just to cover it uh, for the national championships that were that on a few weeks fun. ago or a few great months fun. ago. <laughs> but that was so much fun to watch. And it was one of those things where I was like, I've never fully understood the rules of it. But then once I actually started paying attention, I was like, oh, wow, this makes like more sense than normal rugby 50% of the time. We're not going to turn this into a podcast about how much I am frustrated by the rugby rules, but um, we definitely could. That could be a two-hour special sometime in in between Beijing and the Commonwealth Games maybe. But I more on the topic of I adore mixed sports for a lot of reasons. I actually enjoy playing mixed sport more than playing women's sport. I think that it's a little bit more fun partially because everyone's fooling around a little bit more but I think the inclusion of mixed sport in the Olympics and how much more heavily it is emphasized in the Paralympics even just is proof that like mixed sport is something that we should grow at a competitive level because it is good fun to watch it is great fun to play uh, and you get to see different types of strategy. We've talked about this with the mixed relays but there's also strategy that goes into these mixed team sports that you would never use in single gender sports. Absolutely. And, and this is one of the things that you're going to teach me over the next two and a half weeks as we get into it. And I'm really excited for, there are just, you know, there are so many great stories that are going to come out of the Paralympics because we talked about how much we love the stories out of the Olympics. Um, and then we remember that all the Paralympians have great stories because they've all fought through adversity because realistically you're fighting through a disability to make it to the games and, and so they're super inspirational and, and I'm really excited by those and I was mentioning off air before that you know I'm really excited for the para swimming because Scooter and Ahmed are going to be back um, and how much they captured mine and everyone else's imagination when we had the swimming trials in what I think was April but seems like a lifetime ago <laughs> It, at the same time, it's like, I think it was June, which says something. It was like right at the start of June. But that says something, A, about like, it partially feels like it just happened in my head. But then I'm also just like, the Olympics did not end 
a week and a half ago in our time. Like, there's no way that was only that, like, quick. So it's just, like, this is partially to blame on, like, the lockdown. So we have nothing to do but talk about sport all the time. But also in the sense of there's so much happening so quickly that you, A, forget about it, and then you come back to it and you're like, oh, that wasn't actually that long ago now that I think about it. And the... Para swimming at the Australian trials was some of my favorite events to watch this year. Um, And it is interesting watching them have all the different classes swim at the same time. And you can really see the difference between like the speeds and that sort of thing. And I don't think that's going to be the case of the games. As I understand, all the classes will swim separately, Um, which, you know, it's going to be great for us to highlight every athlete and and it means that no one's going to get forgotten and all 179 of our athletes are going to have their story told all the way from Peter Marchant who's the oldest athlete in the para archery at 60 which puts him not that far off Andrew Hoy so I wonder if the two of them will catch up and talk about what it's like (laughs) being the elder statesman of the Australian team all the way down to Isabella Vincent who like her Olympic counterpart Molly O'Callaghan is a para swimmer and Isabella Vincent is only 15 which is incredibly impressive to be at a Paralympic level at that age. And while it's her first games, I I think we can count that it's not going to be her last and she's going to leave a mark. Well, and she's the youngest athlete we've sent to Tokyo across the two games, uh, which is a massive achievement in itself. Like Molly was 17, I believe, off the top of my head. 19, I thought, but I could be wrong. She's she's very young. (laughs) Either way, very young. At 15, I was not you know, anywhere close to that kind of level. So the fact that Isabella is is super impressive and she's going to yeah lead a mark, I think. In my head, I'm like, 15 was when I was at my peak physical fitness, but also <laughs> I'm not a professional athlete, so it's a whole other level of fitness. But then we've got people like Melissa Tapper as well who went to the Olympics, uh, did recently. Did she come home? I, that's what I'm wondering. I'm assuming that they must have just let her stay in Tokyo because... What's the point in going doing the two week quarantine <laughs> and then coming back well, to Tokyo? I, I don't think I don't think she'd have been out of quarantine yet because I don't think they finished until halfway through the second week. Which means today would spent... have been the day that they would have gotten out, probably because I know a lot the of people did. But the para athletes went off to Tokyo today. There's no way she came home did no, two weeks in quarantine and went back. So I'm, so my we'll get back to you on what <laughs> Melissa Tapp has been up to the last two weeks, but um, it is super excited to have her go to both games well and so i could talk about dylan or almost any day of the week um i very much love tennis that's no secret i also love him i think he's excellent and yes he is a multiple paralympic gold medalist in different sports but he's got a massive month ahead of him because he'll be trying to win paralympic gold in both the sing- quad singles in the wheel quad wheelchair singles and the quad wheelchair doubles and then he's gonna have to go off to uh new york and be in the u.s open <laughs> like immediately after because that starts on the 30th of august so there's no time that said um i don't think there is anything better for your form than a gold medal like you could, if, if you come off a gold medal at the paralympics i'd say you're in reasonably good nick going into the u.s open so we're hopeful that dylan's gonna pull that off and be on track for a golden slam later in the year which wow. is something that no one else has been achieving this year, Chris. <laughs> no, back. I mean, there is... Sir Dokovic didn't make it through the gold medal. And there is the uh, 
wheelchair singles female athlete. I can never remember her name. I always feel really bad about it. Uh, she's from the Netherlands. Like they're both going for it and they'll both have to quickly fly to New York. But the benefit is, is everyone that is going to be competing at the US Open, which is a smaller pool than the Paralympics, will be at the Paralympics. So there's no like excuses that can realistically be made because everyone's doing it. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see if people can either come away from a disappointing loss and win or can win both inside of probably about a week of each other. Yeah, no, it will be pretty close. But the other two athletes that I want to highlight or para-athletes are, are Christy Dawes and Danny DeToro, who are both on their way to their seventh Paralympics, which is an incredible achievement. So Christy Dawes is a, a para-athlete and Danny DeToro is a para-table tennis player. So she'll be teaming up with Melissa Tapper, who we mentioned earlier. But to make it to seven Olympiads is incredible. Um, and, you know, not something to be sneezed at at all. So that's really exciting for them that they'll be there. And um, Danny Tatora was named one of the co-captains, wasn't she? Yes. Um, and she's another athlete that has been uh, a multiple sport Paralympian because she was originally a tennis player and is now a table tennis player. And I believe she now, has... see, a- that just seems like laziness. We're just covering a small area these days. <laughs> Um, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. (laughs) I'm just going to move on past that, okay? But that's one of those cases where it's like she's also a pretty senior member in that table tennis team. And that table tennis team uh, is stacked. They've got three athletes that are formerly uh, gold medalists for China in that team. They've got Mel Tapper, (laughs) Danny DeToro, like... The people that are first-time Olympians are in very good company and that sort of company, I think, breeds a culture where whilst Australia is not really expected to go the distance in table tennis events, realistically speaking, Olympics or Paralympics, uh, a good culture in a team can get you from a second-round exit to a fourth-round exit sometimes because it's just confidence and experience that gets bred into you working together. But even, you know, once you get kind of to that third or fourth round, anything can happen. And we saw it with the Australian beach volleyballers um, in the Olympics with Mariafa, Atacha de Sola and Taliqua Clancy, who, you know, we were talking about, you know, maybe they'd be lucky to get out of the group stages. And once they did, uh, their play came to the four in the knockout rounds and they meant all the way to the silver medals. So if you can make it out of the first couple of rounds, you're every chance at going all the way because anything can happen and you get that confidence up. So there's plenty of optimism in the para table tennis team as well. I A sport I would actually like to see move from the Paralympics to the Olympics is boccia, or I don't know if that's actually how you pronounce it, but it's similar to bocce, but bocce, but make it way more complicated is my thoughts, is that you can make up all these little silly rules, like it can't touch this specific area or something like that. Make it more challenging, but also very entertaining for television audiences. Is this a game I've played before? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there there are so many exciting things and, and, you know, gold ball is the one for me. It's a a unique sport to the Paralympics. Um, Obviously, almost all the other sports have a non-Paralympic counterpart. Um, 
whether that's basketball, rugby, triathlon or whatnot, but goalball is a kind of unique sport of its own. And I think it'd present a really good challenge. And that's, that's going to be the sport that I've become an expert in over the next two weeks. I said it earlier, but I really mean it. Um, you know, there are always the sports come the Olympics and Paralympics is no different. Yeah. And I think the goalball will be good fun to watch. There's been really good um, promo of the goalball, I reckon, uh, leading up to the Paralympics. So it makes it just that little bit more exciting. And the fact that we're sending a team always helps. Absolutely. And Parataekwondo is making its debut at the Olympics. And uh, that, you know, is really exciting. But some of the sad news about that is that Zakia Kudadadi um, of Afghanistan is not going to be making her Olympic debut or Paralympic debut um, as a result of the tragic events over the weekend in Afghanistan. Um, she and Hossein Rasuli, who was set to compete in the discus at the Parathletics, were the two-person team out of Afghanistan for the Paralympics. And unfortunately, they weren't able to make their flight out of the country and weren't able to make it to the games, which is devastating for both of them. And we hope that, um, you know, in three years' time at Paris, things are different and they can make it to the games then. Yeah, it's so, like, without getting overly political, obviously, um, it's tragic that such an opportunity because of what's happened in Afghanistan has been denied to both these athletes, especially for Kudadadi, because she was expected to be the first Afghan Paralympian. And when this talk was starting to come out about what was happening in Afghanistan and like, I was thinking about it in the sense of the Olympians mindset. And I was just like, I wonder if a, they're going to go back home, that sort of thing. It, I didn't even realize that they were sending the Paralympic team in the first place. And then when I came across this, I was just like, wow, like this is just horrible news for people on a personal level. And obviously what's going on in Afghanistan is so much bigger than sport. But it's just one of those things where you're just like, I feel bad for these specific people as well who I am aware of (laughs) on top of having empathy for the situation over there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it only adds to the layers of of how tough it is. And we hope that these things will be resolved fairly peacefully and, and without too much trouble. And, you know, the Paralympics are only three years away. Um, at Paris, and we can just hope that Kuda Dadi and Rasuli will be able to represent Afghanistan there. We'll move on to it's not happy news by any means, it's COVID news, which we talked <laughs> about a lot before the Olympics started. But it is expected that the situation uh, will be, to quote uh, the Australian team chef demission will be more dangerous than it was for the Olympians just because of the spiking cases in Japan. Australia is obviously having spiking cases as is pretty much everywhere because of the Delta variant but I am hoping that it is in a case of there is the awareness that it's more dangerous but like with the Olympics the IPC and also the Australian committee we'll be really on top of it and make sure that not only our athletes are very much protected, but all the athletes and officials and whatnot are put in a situation that is as safe as it can possibly be considering the circumstances. Yeah. I mean, we, we saw 
at the Olympics just how well those protocols worked. Um, I think there were only a handful of athletes that tested positive for COVID in competition, aside from the Czech rugby team, um, which was its own two handfuls. <laughs> yeah, it was six from the Czech rugby team, which that's a lot considering that it's uh, <laughs> rugby seven. So they only had 12 member squads, but also uh, it was if you excluded them, I believe what we were told was that it was 19 athletes, which there were four, over 400 cases related to the games, but the fact that it was only 25 athletes total is massive. Yeah, and hopefully we will see the same level of success with the protocols now. Um, the cases are on the rise, but it seems like the Paralympics will, as with the Olympics, be fairly isolated from the rest of Japanese society in a lot of ways. And hopefully that does keep all of our para-athletes safe um, and they come home healthy and with heavier luggage from all the medals they win. <laughs> I think that what also helps in the case of the Paralympics is that it is smaller, so there will be even less, like, risk of contact um, because the big thing about the Olympics was that it was expected that there was going to be over ten to 15,000 people in the village at one time at different points, especially that middle weekend Whereas you're not going to see anywhere near as many as that at the Paralympics. I think it does bring into question this uh, having school kids come and be spectators because as much as people want to pretend like it's not, um, kids can still get it and can transmit it. But at the same time, that is going to be heavily restricted and be something where every single person will have to test negative before they can attend as well. And we talk about all the challenges that that the athletes will face in Tokyo in terms of the protocols. But for some of these Paralympians, actually getting to Tokyo is proving to be a challenge. Um, Patrick Flanagan had a pretty serious issue um, when he flew through Heathrow Airport. So he's an Irish swimmer. And he flew from Ireland to London Heathrow on his way to Tokyo. And his wheelchair was completely broken by the luggage handlers, it looks like. Um, So the wheels no longer spin. um, And he's basically been, he was forced to sit in an airport wheelchair, which is a pretty generic oversized thing, um, and and told to fill out a, a claim form for for the damage to, to sort it out, which is obviously not great from Heathrow, but it's a bigger problem. Um, he's lucky he's got an old wheelchair that he can use as a spare, but a lot of athletes wouldn't be in that position. Um, and, you know, we, we hope that there aren't going to be any other stories of athletes who have faced challenges just getting to Tokyo in the physical sense. I mean, we've talked about how hard the journey's been through COVID for, for everyone over the last two years, but to be, you know, all set to go and then it still not be the end of the trouble is is really disheartening. And, you know, Flanagan's trying to put on a brave face and, and get on with it and excited for the games, but um, it's not a great start to his Paralympic campaign. No, and obviously the having a claim form, that sort of thing. So, and they were allegedly like quite apologetic, but... That also comes a question to me of like, how common is this as well? Like we're being made aware of this because this is someone that is going to the Paralympics, but it brings attention to the fact that this probably does happen often enough. Like whilst it might not be an everyday or even an every month occurrence, it happening twice a year is too much when it's 
and a human, like a person's independence comes from their wheelchair a lot of the time and that sort of thing. And they're not cheap either. Like there's no under, like no way you can underestimate the fact that like the wheelchairs are not cheap and yes, they get a claim, but how much, how long does that take? How long does it take to them to get a new wheelchair that is theirs and not something that they've got on loan and that sort of thing. And we're realistically only being made aware of this because he's going to the Paralympics. If he wasn't, it wouldn't have been a news story. If it was just like a normal Paris swimming event, even like the equivalent of world championships, he like that probably wouldn't have been a massive news story. It's because it was the Paralympics that this has now come out. And it's important that this gets told and that people know that this happens and it's not great. I mean, even more so if he wasn't a Paralympic athlete, he was just someone who required a wheelchair. We definitely wouldn't be hearing about it and it would still be a massive issue. And we can only hope that, you know, one of the positives that comes out of this story is that there is a heightened level of awareness of things like that. And we do start to see kind of a, a culture of change and, and kind of consideration and making sure that these things don't happen because it's a pretty tough start for Flanagan. And hopefully he's gotten to Tokyo without any other problems <laughs> as well as has a great Paralympics because, yes, whilst we cheer for the Aussies, it is important. I like Paralympics and Olympics athletes in general. <laughs> so it's one of those things where it's like, I want everyone to do well. I just want the Aussies to do better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Flanagan has made it to the Games. One Paralympian who isn't going is Rebecca Myers. Um, she's a US para swimmer who was um, favoured to win gold in the women's 400 freestyle in the S13 category. Um, but she's deafblind and has been forced to withdraw basically because the delegation size is too small for her to have a personal care attendant. So um, the US OPC, the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, um, reduced the delegation size under the restrictions to have one slot for a personal care attendant for the 34 Paralympic swimmers. But it's not great for her because she wasn't then able to bring her mother as a personal care attendant for her alone, which she requires. Um, and as a result, she's basically said, why well, I can't go to the games, which is devastating. One person as a personal care attendant for 34 athletes is ridiculous to me. It's just not enough. Uh, you Like their role is a lot more important than say just a, someone that is on staff for a normal, like a typical Olympic team. But one person for 34 athletes, when there is a range of disabilities, means that they can't necessarily take care of all of those uh, issues that might come up like it's just too that. much for one person as well well and maya talked about that in her paralympic experience at rio so she won three golds at para but went without a personal care attendant and said it was an experience she would never go through again um because she couldn't find the athlete's dining hall which meant she couldn't eat she stayed in her room and talked about the fact that she you know she cried and was scared the whole time and that's just unacceptable no. in, in this day and age. And the Paralympic is about celebrating disabilities, not making it harder for these phenomenal athletes to compete at the Games. And the fact that this has been an issue is, is a real concern. Um, 
and and you know one for 34 athletes just and not every paralympic athlete needs their own personal care attendant a lot of them are disabled in such a way that allows them to still attend to their own personal care needs and not require an attendant but a lot of them do and one for 34 just isn't cutting it no it's a ridiculously small number in my mind um you wouldn't have one person taking care of 34 children on a camp like that sort of thing and like paralympic athletes are not comparable to children by any means but you wouldn't have one personal attendant for 34 olympic athletes you know they would have had more support staff than that it wasn't just you know put aside the disabilities one personal care person you know for 34 athletes is just not enough um and you know plain and simple yeah it's something that irritates me to no end like this kind of a story because it's just it is not fair on these athletes. It's also not fair on that individual that is the personal care attendant because realistically they cannot do their job well enough. They have been put in an impossible position in a lot of ways and it's not about them by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, if these athletes, these para-athletes are to be taken care of properly uh, and all of their needs met as well as they should be so that they can perform at the most elite competition in the world. One person for 34 is not ever going to be enough, ever. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think that we need to focus on the fact that the Paralympics are going to be, a, on the whole, I think a really positive experience for the athletes. And I really hope for the spectators as well, because, Lord knows I could do with the lift of two weeks of Paralympic joy. Um, and, and, you know, there, there are going to be some of these stories, but we have to remember that the Paralympics is about celebrating incredible athletes who have fought through all kinds of adversity. Um, and, and they are going to be incredibly inspirational. I mean, we talked about how much the Olympics was inspirational to us in lockdown and how much we needed that lift. And I think the Paralympics is going to be even more so um, and, you know, that's a real credit to the Paralympians and the para-athletes who are going out there and performing at such a high level, you know, COVID be damned, disability be damned, travel be damned, lockdown, everything be damned. You know, they're going to go out and do a phenomenal job. And that's something that's really exciting for, you know, from next Tuesday, basically for two weeks. And so I'm really looking forward to that. Well, and I'll add to the excitement because, as you said, everything be damned, but also um, refugee status be damned because just in the past hour, at least the Paralympics official Twitter has announced that Ibrahim al Hussein is the first uh, Paralympic refugee team member to oh, arrive in the village. Uh, he's a Paralympic swimmer. The picture of him holding his arms up almost in, like, celebration, very cute. <laughs> but that's those sort of stories that it's like, yes, we made mention of the refugee Olympic team, but the Paralympic refugee team or the refugee Paralympic team is just as important. They've overcome the adversity of their disability status, um, but then they've also things that they've gone through in their life that can be equally as challenging. Um and the fact that he's in the village, which must just be so exciting, and is the first member of that team, which is quite small, is huge. And 
it's a better way to end things than talking about (laughs) other frustrating matters. So this has been Ascending Olympus. You can find us on Twitter at Ascending Olipod. You can read any of our Paralympic stories, uh, including the daily recaps once the Paralympics starts at theinnersanctum.com.au. Thank you for listening and we'll see you once the Paralympics begins. We'll see you soon.